Amen. Please remain standing. I have two short passages to read. Please remember, these are the words of God. They are for his people. They are to be received by grace through faith. They are to be received as the truth, the very truth of God. These are God's words. First of all, John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Acts chapter 2, this is uh, in the same passage that uh, was read this morning, a call to worship regarding the time of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. And in verse 33, and towards the end of Peter's sermon on that day, he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, referring to the ascension of Christ, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Thus is far God's uh, word being read. Let us ask his blessing upon it. Most gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these texts this morning, do your promised work by your Spirit, that we might grow in our faith and obedience. We desire to understand you and your ways more. And we desire that the, the instruction we receive would turn our hearts toward you in deeper and deeper ways. Do this to the glory of the name of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So my goal this morning in a sermon on the topic of Pentecost is to give you all a gift. My, my, I, I want you to receive a gift from God, an understanding, a, a reawakening, a, maybe, a, maybe a better comprehension of what it means that God has given to us his Holy Spirit, of, of what that means. And I hope, um, I hope it's either a little surprising um, or... If you, if you are aware of some of this, this aspect of the gift of the Spirit, it's a little renewing for you in, in, a, in a wonderful way, for you individually, for us as a church as well. As we were reminded this morning, um, Pentecost Sunday and is an, was an Old Testament feast. Uh, it wasn't called Pentecost that, that morning that the Holy Spirit fell. It was, a, it was a feast that existed throughout the Old Covenant system. It was one of three feasts that you were to come to Jerusalem um, before the Lord. It was celebrated 50 days after the Sabbath following Passover, hence the name Pentecost. It was an annual pilgrimage and a holy convocation in Jerusalem. Wherever you lived, as you were able and you were to make yourself available, you, at least the head of the household, if not the whole family, would come to this feast and this, and this convocation. And, and you came there commemorating the first fruit, fruits of the early harvest, as was established in Leviticus chapter 23. You, you brought the first fruits, the tithe. You brought the beginnings of the harvest that would come all, all year long. And the idea was is that you came and you offered the first fruits of God on Pentecost Sunday. And as you did so, by the way, it was Sunday. This was an eighth-day Sabbath. Watch the eighth-day Sabbaths in the Old Testament and see the foreshadowings of, the res of Resurrection Sunday. So it was an eighth-day Sabbath. You brought the first fruits, but you brought them giving thanks to God. And in celebration, you consumed them before God as well. And, but you did so with great expectation of a greater harvest still to come. 
Okay, that was Pentecost. In addition, uh, in Joshua chapter 8, after Joshua brings the people into the promised land, he establishes the, a great convocation. And on that day, he has the, the words, of the ten words, the, the, the uh, commandments of God written on stone again. And then he, they spend the day, he reads the entire books of Moses. He, he writes all that Moses instructed them on that day. And that became built into the tradition of Pentecost. So on Pentecost, you would come and you also would hear of the deliverance of the people um, from, from the Exodus, and you'd hear God's law. God's law would be brought to you. It was kind of connected to um, the, the idea that they had been delivered from Egypt, and then at Mount Sinai, the law was given to them. And so on Pentecost, um, where, where, you know, Mount Sinai, where there was all the thunders and rumblings, and God came down and descended and met with Moses, well, then on Pentecost, they remembered that with the reading of the law. So the Pentecost celebration 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus that particular year brought forth the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, a true first fruits of nations. You see, there were, there were people gathered from all these different nations, mostly Jews, but God-fearers as well, from all these different people groups, the, all these different languages. God pours out his spirit, and, and as he does so, he declares his word. His word is declared through these tongues through, to, so that the people could understand in their own languages, as it says in Acts 2.11, the wonderful works of God. That was what was being proclaimed. The wonderful works of God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is what was being proclaimed in everybody's language to them, their common tongue. This was the baptism. And so, and so when, when this is happening, this became, becomes an outpouring or a, a first fruits of the nations and an outpouring of God's word. And the two go together. This was the baptism of the body of Christ. So we had the baptism of Jesus. Now we have the baptism of the body of Christ. And this was also an overflow of the baptism of Jesus, the head of the church, and all of us, all of you here, are an outpouring, an overflow of the pleasure of God in his son and his people, the elect of God. Now, does that, feel, that might feel like a jump. I just said, well, all of that is an outflow and an overpouring, overpouring or overflowing of the pleasure of God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just, it, it wasn't just that there was this power that took place. It wasn't just that... Even the person of the Spirit came down. But it was a, it was a declaration and an, an implantation or imputation of the pleasure of God in his Son into you. Pentecost celebrates the pleasure God had and has in you. Why in heaven's names are we not celebrating all in the, in the church, all over the world, every year? Pentecost. This is, this is the gift of God saying, you already know God loves you. I say, for God so loved the world. But this is like God saying, you know what? I like you. I delight in you. I take pleasure in you. And yeah, immediately you should say, me? How could he take pleasure in me? How could he delight in me? And that's the story of the gospel. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of God. Now, I'm going to try to tie these things together, these two passages together, and show you that, that this is, in fact, what Pentecost celebration ultimately is fulfilling, is, is bringing forth to all of us. So, before we consider again the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, look with me again at the baptism of Jesus and consider these things. The baptism of Jesus Christ is 
the pleasure, is the pleasure of God the Father in his Son. So in that passage that I read, as Jesus was baptized, it says that the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him. The Spirit of God came along with these words as well. The voice of the Father. So the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and then the words of the Father are spoken. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Don't disconnect those two things. These things are happening concurrently. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Okay? So the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are declaring, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit and the Word. His words of pleasure in His Son. The pleasure of God was poured out upon the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit. The pleasure of God was poured out upon the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit. Throughout, um, throughout the study of the Trinity among theologians, over centuries now, going back all the way to the early church fathers, there is a discussion about who the person of the Holy Spirit is. And at, and it's at, at his base, kind of at the base of it all, the Holy Spirit is, the, is a person. But he is a person that exists because of the ongoing love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. The, 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 the union and communion of Father and Son is not just an emotion, not just a feeling, not just power, but a person, the third person of the Trinity. Now, if you say, if you say to yourselves, now, I, I can't get my head wrapped all around that. That's okay. No one else can either. Okay? You, you, but let's see if we can see it a little bit more. So, what, what, part of what you see also, you see the Father, the Father speaking to His Son. And this is the glorious work of the Father and the essence, true essence of fatherhood. As Jesus begins His earthly ministry, the Father is present and made his presence felt by the sending of his spirit, and made his presence heard by his words of affirmation and affection. This is what the father, the perfect father, did over his son. And it was all done publicly, so everybody could see it, everybody could hear it, everybody could attest to it, the father's love for his son. Identifying himself with his son, he says, this is my son. And his expressed love for his son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And this takes place before Jesus has done any ministry at all. This is at Matthew chapter eight, uh, 3. This is the first public thing that happens with Jesus. Before he begins his three years of ministry, the father announces, This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So first note. There is much here to learn for all earthly fathers. Presence, presence felt, presence heard, affirmation, affection, public declaration before anything has been done. Children don't earn our affection, affirmation, our love, our presence, our protection. They are by, by, because we are their father. That's what we are to give them. We're to imitate our Heavenly Father in that particular way. But then finally, at the end of chapter 3, we, we move quickly into chapter 4 of Matthew. Finally, that person, that person who is the pleasure of God in his Son, led Jesus into the hard work of his ministry, beginning with the, being tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. So, you have this beautiful moment of, of 
the transpire, or, or, uh, transpiring or, or bringing forth of the love and delight of God, the Father in his Son, in the person of the Spirit. And the next thing you know, that Spirit is leading him off in the, to be de- tempted by the devil for 40 days. So, so, the delight of a father, the affection of a father, and, and the delight of the, of, the, of the father for his son doesn't mean cush living for the rest of your life. That's not what it means. Okay? It does mean the father's presence and his love is upon you. It doesn't mean cush living. It, 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 Jesus is immediately sent out into all kinds of trials. The pleasure in, in the pleasure of God, he would be smitten by God and bruised for our iniquities. Not only does he turn him over, not only does he turn him over for the devil there, it is God himself, the Father himself, who pours out this, the, the wrath, his wrath upon all sin as Jesus hangs on the cross, fulfilling Isaiah 53. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so in the pleasure of God, he's, he, he ends up being smitten by God and bruised for our iniquities. So baptism was an anointing of power, for sure, of Christ, an anointing as an anointing of a king, identifying him as king and high priest himself. But much more, it was the pleasure of God in the person of the Spirit upon Jesus. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, because we'll look at a few different verses besides just, uh, um, just 2.33. As Jesus was about to ascend to the throne of God, he promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit and that they should wait in Jerusalem for him. He does not want them to go out into ministry until they have received the Holy Spirit. And so in the beginning of Acts, he says uh, in verses 4 through 8, chapter 1, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There would be this great work that would take place through the church that would extend to all of the earth, but not until they had received the promise of the Holy Spirit. That was 40 days, the day of, uh, on Christ's ascension, 40 days after his resurrection. Ten days go by. And ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, while, the, while these apostles, scared to death really for their lives, are, are in hiding up in an upper room somewhere, the Holy Spirit falls upon them on the day when pilgrims from all over the known world had gathered for the feast. There came a sound from heaven. With, with great sounds of trumpets and, and a great uh, rushing wind, so that people all around the city apparently hear this and they come running to, the, to where, where the apostles and the disciples are, are at that moment. And they come and they find that here these tongues of fire have descended and are sitting upon each of the disciples as they now begin to speak. And that's a passage that, um, that Jeff read earlier this morning. This was the pleasure of God in the person of the Holy Spirit overflowing from Jesus upon those who were now brought 
into this new creation, the body of Christ. This was the baptism of the church into the new covenant creation, into the explosion of the covenant of grace to all nations. This was the first fruits, a little bit from every nation with the promise that there was far more to come. That's why he's going to send them to the ends of the earth. That's why you are sitting here in a church this morning. Because the Holy Spirit had come upon those men and women. And because out of that came forth this great work of the gospel that would go forth from Jerusalem into all of the surrounding Judea and Samaria, even the half-breeds would hear, and then to the ends of the earth to all the pagans. Every nation would come and be brought in to the obedience of Christ. And that was the pleasure of God. Paul would later teach, listen to this carefully, Romans 5, 5. The love of God, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. <coughs> you see that? The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit or in the person of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> They're not really separable. It's not like the Holy Spirit kind of had cups of love, and, and then the Father sent him down with cups of love, and then he gave you cups of love. No, you have the Holy Spirit, who is the love of God, who is the love of God for his people. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is, therefore, to receive the overflow of the pleasure of the Father over his Son, the head of the church, overflowing to the body of Christ, the head and then the body. Baptism is God the Father's declaration of his pleasure in you. Baptism is the declaration of the Father's pleasure in you. Now, in Christ, it's in Christ and in Christ only that you know the Father's pleasure by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the vehicle that drives you on that road to the destination, to the Father. You can think of it that way. So Jesus Christ is the road. The Holy Spirit is the empowered vehicle that takes you on that road, in that road, to the destination, to be with the Father. And now, when that happens, once you are with the Father... What happens? Well, you are, declared, you are declared to be a child of God, just as Jesus is considered to be the Son of God. 1 John 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The Father is doing the same thing, the same thing that he did with his Son. So remember all the things that, that the Son experienced, or all the things that happened in that baptism of, of Jesus Christ, identifying him with the Father and what the Father thought of him. Father's doing the same thing that he did with his Son. He's present with us with much blessing. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The Spirit has been given to us, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You heard from the Father in the person, person of the Holy Spirit, you hear this from the Father, you're mine and you're always mine. You are forever mine. You are forever mine. 
I purchased you with my son, and my spirit attests to the fact that you've been sealed by me until that final day. And our adoption is declared. We have truly been transferred from being under one Adam to a second Adam, from being under one father, the devil, to another father now, the heavenly father, having predestined us uh, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And we're called his beloved children. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Why should I be imitators of God? Why should you be imitators of Jesus? Because you're beloved like Jesus. I'm not sure. There's not necessarily a mathematical figure to figure out here to, to determine the quantity of love that the Father has for the Son and the quantity of the love that he has for you. But all of us are tempted to think that God the Father loves the Son far more than he loves me. Problem is, I can't find a single verse in Scripture to clarify that. Rather, I'm constantly, I, I'm, I'm constantly brought face to face with the fact that the overflow of, the, of God's love for his son is, is his love for the world, is his love for you, is his delight in us. Now, we all have imperfect fathers, all of us, every single one of us has an imperfect earthly father. And so, but for any of a number of reasons, it's hard for us to, to see that kind of perfect love, that perfect delight, that perfect affection, that perfect attention, that perfect, and, and believe that's happening because of our imperfect experiences with our fathers, earthly fathers. But this is where eyes of faith make us look to the example of earthly fathers and to where things have gone well, say, yes, that's, that's right. It rings true and helps me to see. And where it doesn't, even when it doesn't, there is a sense that, yeah, that wasn't right. That was not full. That wasn't complete. And I know that because with eyes of faith, I see the perfect love and delight that the Father declares here over his son and over his people, overflowing to his people. So we're to learn that. Well, finally, that person who is the pleasure of God in his son, given to his people, also leads us into the hard work of ministry. It also led them, the apostles and disciples, into their hard work of ministry. Peter gets up and he proclaims the gospel. All of a sudden, he is full of courage and confidence. Peter, the one who denied Jesus in public three times, is the one who's going to get up after they've been afraid of, of, of a coming arrest and he's going to get up and publicly declare to all of these people that, yeah, all of those Jews, all of those, all of those uh, uh, under Herod and under Pontius Pilate, all of them are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. But that was foretold by God and through God to be the salvation of the world. As he, as he preaches from the Old Testament, as he preaches from the prophecies from the Old Testament, they're cut to the quick and they ask, what shall we do? And he tells, he tells them uh, in Acts 2.37, uh, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said Peter, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And as he does so, 
3,000 people are saved that day in that sermon. That's what Pentecost does. That's what, that's what the love of God does. That's what the love of God preached does. And then it says, uh, daily, daily they kept being adding, adding to their number. Actually, at Acts 2, 46, 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 3,000 were saved that day on the day of Pentecost when the fire of the Spirit came down and fell upon the new mountain of God's people reversing the 3,000 people who died on the day at Mount Sinai when Moses comes down. Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees Aaron and everybody worshiping a gold calf. He throws down the, he throws down the, the, um, uh, the tablets of the law. They break. He then tells the, the priests of Levi to go and, and kill those who are um, probably involved in all kinds of sexual immorality and, 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 har- and, uh, and idolatry going on as they're, as they're sacrificing in some way before this golden calf. And the, and, the, and the Levites go around and they begin killing the Israelites, the disobedient Israelites. And on that day, it's recorded in Exodus 32, 28, 3,000 people were killed. On Pentecost, when the fire of the Spirit is, falls, falls upon all of these nations, in that one sermon that day, 3,000 people are saved. God is reversing, turning upside down his curse and delivering the people and the world into his name. That's what you're supposed to see. So that's what's going on. He sends them out, and the book of Acts then begins to show us the great trials and temptations and difficulties that the church has that the leaders of the church have. Peter is, in fact, arrested. Tradition will tell us that Peter is actually, as promised by Jesus at the end of uh, John's gospel, that Jesus himself will be crucified. He will be crucified upside down, determining he's not worthy to be put to death in the same way that his Lord was. In fact, uh, the, the history books attest to all all of the apostles being martyred, with the one exception of, uh, of John being exiled all of them being martyred for their faith. So that ministry was not without great temptations, trials, and persecutions. Paul would write in Philippians 1, for to you, writing to the church as well, that would be us, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He would write on his, in his last uh, letter to Timothy, to 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The delight of God is upon you, but it's not a cush life. Not here. Not now. This is a war. This is a spiritual war that we are in, we are in right now. And it's a war that we are fighting. It's a war that we are in in order to bring the light, the life the delight of God in others to him. This initial ministry continued for 40 years, the Acts of the Apostles, until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In that passage I read at the end of Acts chapter 2, it's interesting, it says that they would go into the temple daily, and then they would go from house to house and break bread. So they go in the temple where they could openly declare uh, Jesus whenever they could, and they get in trouble about it all the, all the time. You see it throughout the Gospel of Acts. 
until they're finally, the persecution actually sends them all either into hiding there or away off into other, the, what became known as the diaspora, the, 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 these Christians that had to flee Jerusalem for their lives because of persecution. And as they do so, um, the gospel then spreads even more. But they would continue to meet in the temple in this kind of crossover period between the old covenant and then the beginning and the finalization of the new covenant uh, being brought forth and a true temple being the Holy Spirit decentralized all over the world as wherever the people of God gather in his name. The gospel has been going out to the ends of the earth ever since. The temple of the living God has been spreading over the entire earth. The, 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 this new covenant, uh, well, in, in Revelation you have the, the picture of the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. Um, it has to be, it has to be an illustration and not an exact representation because um, it, uh, I, I can't remember exactly the, the, the number of, square miles that it would be. It was actually cubic miles. But someone once said that you could basically cover all of the uh, eastern seaboard, maybe almost half of the United States, with this new Jerusalem falling down out of the sky. And then it's that high as well as a perfect cube. But really what we're seeing is this, that the entire globe, the entire world, is the temple of the living God, is the promised land, because of this outflow of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel. How can God have the same pleasure in you that he has in Christ? Is that, this is the, this is the gift part. I don't, I, I, I want to, I want to live as though I believe this. I, I want this to change the way that I live my day. But I, I don't know I can get my head around God delighting in me as much as he delights in the Son. But see, he's not comparing us. I'm in the Son. You see that? It's not like he had, it, 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 we're brought into the Son, we're brought into Christ, and so the love of Christ that the, the God the Father has is the love he has for his body, not just his head. We, we're, we are, we're deeply tied, covenantally tied into Christ by grace through faith. This is, this is, let's think about this. Any one of us has committed so much sin that God cannot love you in yourself. Every single one of you cannot be loved by God left to yourself. There is absolutely no way to measure up. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fall short, the glory of God. And the wages of sin, 6.23, is death. Separation, eternal separation, condemnation from God. That's where you stand. Try as you might. That's how close you're going to get to the glory of God on your sweet little good works. Give it up. Give it up. That is a road of guilt. That is a road of shame. That is a road of lying to yourself. You cannot earn the favor of God. Period. Spurgeon says, You have so offended his infinite justice that his pure and holy nature repents that he ever made you. <laughs> That's not good news. But according to his love, another man has taken that just wrath upon himself, that holy forsaking of you, so that Jesus would cry out from the cross as um, singing, <laughs> screaming, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
because all of my people's sin has been placed upon you. We see in Matthew 27, that is exactly what Jesus cries out. Your baptism is God's mark and declaration upon you. It is your identity. It marks you as having been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and then raised in new life with Christ. You've been raised with Christ because you were buried with him. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How is it that Paul is able to say, the, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God? Who loved me? Who delighted in me? Who takes pleasure in me? Why? Because I'm not so bad a sinner? Absolutely not. No, in spite of the fact that you are a terrible sinner. He doesn't give his reasons. They are not for us. But in his election of you, in his calling of you, it is because he delights. He delights in you. And so not only, not only that, but we find in this worship service that, that God is singing and delighting over us as well. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You came in this morning to church. You came in this morning to church and you thought, ah, it's pouring down rain. Do we really want to go? We're running late. Kids aren't doing well. Should we go? Should we go? You walked in this door and you gathered with the gathering of the saints. And God said to his angels, look who's come. Look who's come. I'm going to rejoice over them with singing. I'm going to rejoice over you with singing. He really doesn't care how much you care. Oh, he does, but not that much. He really rejoices over us with singing. And when we sing to one another, we're told that we're teaching and admonishing one another, and we're told it's the voice of the body of Christ. It's the voice of Jesus. So we sing, being filled with the word of God, as it says in Colossians 3, being filled with the word of God by the Holy Spirit, by the one who delights in us with his singing, and then we turn around with the voice of Jesus, and we declare with our, our, our brother, or he declares to us, his, his delight in the Father. So when, we declaring, we're, when we're declaring our delight in the Father, it is the voice of Christ also that is delighting in the Father and declaring that delight to us. That's the second half of, of, of Psalm 22. Not only that, so, so this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the person who is the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you, I've said this, taught this before, but in Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, that, that phrase is there every time. It's, this, it's the, uh, um, the welcome, in, it's the, it, you, you read over it really quickly and you think it's, that's like, dear Bill, right? Um, or, or you might even say, grace to you, you understand that. But notice that it's always, it's the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about the Holy Spirit, Paul? Did Paul believe in the Holy Spirit? 
Well, yeah, of course, he writes about the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit. What's going on? Jonathan Edwards is the one, I think, who brought a lot of clarity to this when he, um, when he declared or, or taught that the grace and peace that is from the Father and the Son is the person of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is present, as the Holy Spirit is working in you, what you're receiving is Him. Grace, peace, love. <laughs> All fits together. Spurgeon says to those yet unconverted, my dear friend, if you are one of the Lord's chosen, you're already in Christ in God's eternal purpose. But the way in which you experimentally get into Christ is by true faith in him. To trust in Jesus is to be in Jesus. Another way to say this, tying this all together, is this. To have faith in Jesus Christ, to have faith in Jesus Christ is not simply an intellectual assent. Look, having faith in Christ is not about your intellectual capacity. If it was, all the smart people would be Christians and people like me wouldn't. I'm testimony to the fact that it's not about your intellectual capacity. Here I am. Faith is not about that primarily. So what is faith? Faith is trust in the faithfulness of another. Simply trust in the faithfulness of God's word, of God's promises, and of God's work. Faith in Jesus Christ is to believe in God's infinite pleasure in his Son, overflowing the Son to all who are in the Son, in which we now overflow with the work of the Spirit in us. Before you've done anything, you didn't earn it. You can't earn it. In fact, it was determined before, the, before all time that he would be delighting in you. It has to be unrelated to anything that you have or will do because it is all of grace. It's all of grace. It is the pleasure of God. You just receive it. You just receive it. And the fruit of the Spirit works out in us, comes forth in us, because God's Spirit is in us. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the overflow of the pleasure of God working through you. The, the, the Holy Spirit is, is the overflow of God the Father's pleasure in the Son, and then that overflow flows from us as we, with the fruit of the Spirit, overflow the pleasure of God from us out into the world around us. Your baptism marks you as a Christian, a man or a woman, recreated, re-identified, reborn. Now, walking in that spirit that marked you, that tatted you. Why is everybody getting tattoos these days? Because they need identification. They need to declare something about themselves. They feel not quite connected to who they are, who they want to be, or to something in their past, or... Uh, maybe that's too much. Maybe it's just kind of artsy thing they want to do. So often there's a story. And so often for Christians, we don't realize how deeply we've been marked, identified. But I, but I can't show you my tattoo, can I? Oh, yes, indeed, I can. My tattoo is declared when this unbelievable work comes out of me that could not have come from me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. <laughs> yeah, that's not for me. That's not me. 
That's a work of another. That's the fruit of another inside of me that is going on. And so walking in that spirit that marked you, you can finally put off the deeds of the flesh and walk in the spirit. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? Well, it is walking in a person who is not you. It is walking in a person who has remade you. It is walking in a person who is the pleasure of God in his son. You could say it is walking in the delight, the joy, and the happiness of God. To walk in the spirit is to walk in the delight, the joy, and the happiness of God. And you say, well, what if I don't feel joy, delight, and happiness? Tough. It's not your delight, joy, and happiness we're measuring. It's God's. And his is infinite, eternal. It's always. You're to walk in his happiness, not yours. You're to walk in his joy, not yours. It's not the joy of Dave that is my strength. It's the joy of the Lord that is my strength. Right? So I, I, I am walking in the delight of someone else over me, and that overflows. I'm, deli- I'm walking in the joy of someone else, and that is my strength. I'm walking in the happiness of someone else, and that is really, really wonderful for curmudgeons like me. I'm walking in the joy of someone else. And that delight, that joy, that happiness that God has directed firmly at and in you, for you are the beloved in whom he is well pleased. This is all by grace, appropriated by faith alone, and no works. For by grace... What's that grace again? The love of the Father for the love for the Son. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The Holy Spirit granting you faith by grace. It is all the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So thought experiment and thought experiment. How does, how does someone live whose father acknowledges, appreciates, shows affection and approval, and is present in words and deeds? What, what does that kind of person live like? Well, all kinds of works follow. Courage and confidence, faithfulness to the father, and what follows from our father's delight and pleasure in us. Well, it is the fruit of that pleasure, the fruit of the spirit. That fruit of the spirit is the work of God's pleasure and happiness in you. This fruit comes forth from us because the Spirit is in us. But here's also the catch. It's not for us. The fruit of the Spirit is not for us primarily. They are, they are instead the, the faithfulness, the faithful working of God through us to others. It's not that love, joy, peace, etc. are hanging on us, making us have feelings of love, joy, and peace. That's not what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit reorients us away from ourselves, just like the Spirit orients us, not to himself, but to the one that, has, that sent him, the Father and the Son. So the fruit reorients us away from ourselves, just like the Spirit himself. We love God and we love our neighbor. We rejoice in Christ and rejoice over, with, and for others. We have peace with God, but we are also the peacemakers of the world. And all because of the pleasure of God in his Son, and all because of the pleasure of God in you. What are you going to do with that? Meditate over it. Think about this. God loves you more than you could ever measure. God loves you more than you love yourself. 
In fact, you don't need to learn to love yourself more. You don't. You do not have to learn to love yourself more. All you need to do is reflect and enjoy how much God the Father loves you. Who cares how much you love yourself? Don't you realize how much God loves you? So happy Pentecost. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, grant to us the love, grace, and peace that is the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, taking our sin and imputing his righteousness to us. Strengthen these, my brothers and sisters, in the pleasure you have in your Son and in them. Let love, joy, and peace overflow in our lives because it overflows in your life, in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We do not deserve such delight, but we desire it. And we receive it as we grow in it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.